BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. We have a big day today. Professor Richard Wolf, the economics professor, is with us. He will be with us in just a moment. Will America start to see a crackdown on monopoly? The Biden administration is rolling out some some uh, really important talking points about that. We'll get to that. And also, the shocking things the GOP and the Trumpians believe. Is our reality TV media up to the task of comparing and contrasting the two political parties and judging the most likely outcomes of the directions they've chosen? Have the Trumpians sent religion straight to hell in America? This is an amazing piece we'll get into. Also, stay tuned for the GOP death cult watch. Ho, ho, ho. How many people is Marjorie Taylor Greene harmed and killed today? And on the line with us, our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books. His most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, also available as an e-book, rdwolf.com, democracyatwork.info, Prof Wolf with two Fs on Twitter. Professor Wolf, welcome back, uh, the, and, and, and Happy New Year to you. There's there this morning, the White House, uh, I think he was the deputy economic advisor, was on television talking about how the North American um, or how in, in the United States, the meat processing industry, 85 percent of the industry is controlled by four companies and their profits are up massively right now. And everybody's complaining about the increase in the price of meat, or at least all those people who eat meat and uh, blaming Joe Biden and the Democrats for it. Uh, monopoly seems to be driving inflation pretty aggressively. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on this and, and what, how we should address this and, and uh, you know, where this all might go. Sure. Uh, and first of all, Happy New Year to you, Tom. Uh, it is a pleasure working with you. And I know I express the feelings of all your listeners and viewers that uh, we're grateful that you're there and that you keep doing what you've done so well for so long. Thank you. Uh, having Thank said you. all that, um, let me make it really clear to get to the core of it. Capitalism is an economic system in which companies, as we well know, compete with one another. That's what we read in the books, and that's true as far as it goes. What the, isn't spoken about is the fact that one of the things that companies typically compete over sooner or later as they grow is what we call market 
share. The companies want to have a bigger market share until they are one of either a tiny number, and we call that an oligopoly, or they're the only one left standing, and we call it a monopoly. And the reasons companies always want to get to that point is because if you're one of a few or if you're the only one, you can charge more than you could when you had to fear competitors retaliating against you if you raised your price and they chose not to. And when you have only a few, like the four that dominate the meat processing industry, well, then you can jack up your prices, contribute to the inflation, and make a lot of money uh, in the process, which is why capitalists do that. The only thing that's bizarre here in these stories is that anybody in their right mind who knows American history, where we have seen this literally innumerable times, would want to blame it on this or that president, this or that a political party, all of these fellows, uh, and women too, uh, insofar as they're involved, have been watching this process their entire lives. Certainly Mr. Trump did, certainly Mr. Obama did, and certainly Mr. Biden did do relatively little about it. Uh, now that they're in the hot seat for inflation, they're decided, oh, this issue, which has generated, you know, antitrust movements in this country for at least a century and a half, is once again on the agenda, but it looks for all the world like a temporary political ploy. Because if you really wanted to do something about monopolies and how they do indeed jack up prices whenever they can, why in the world would you start with the meat industry when there are plenty of examples that have had a much greater impact on the inflation we have? The tiny number of companies and countries that control the oil and gas business, the tiny number of companies that control telecommunications in the world, uh, these are much more likely targets for the monopoly discussion and for the reintroduction of antitrust and anti-monopoly legislation, even though the record of that legislation working leaves a great deal to be desired. Yeah, I think I, my, my guess is that the reason why the administration is singling out meat is because Fox News has been pounding on this for weeks now. Um, meat is something that most families confront the price of on a regular basis as, you know, as they buy it for food. And uh, some of these, you know, your cell phone bill going up, uh, you know, it seems like it's just constantly creeping up and they're figuring out new ways to, to, to add charges and things. But my guess is that that's where it's coming from. But yeah, I, my recollection is it was, it was uh, mid-year 1983 that Ronald Reagan directed the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission to stop enforcing the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, and the Antitrust Act of 1956. No president since then has seriously done that. The last major effort was when Richard Nixon initiated the breakup of AT&T, which resolved itself under Jimmy Carter. Um, do you think that the, it, 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 do we need to 
come up with a whole brand new set of laws, or is it really just a matter of reversing Reagan's 1983 decision and saying, you know, we're going to start enforcing these laws because they are fairly broad. I mean, they, they, the laws themselves don't specify market share or percentage or number of companies, so they're, they're up to the interpretation of the regulators. There's no question there's an interpretation, and the breadth of these laws was written intentionally uh, to keep it open to the discretion of successive uh, Supreme Courts, successive Congresses, successive executive branches. But the reality is that that breadth has been used overwhelmingly to look the other way. And there's no surprise the monopolist who achieves being one of a handful or being the only producer is thereby able to make a ton of money, and they're not so stupid as to not realize that one of the things they better do with the extra monopoly gains they get is to make sure that the political system which could hypothetically come in and disturb their monopoly, chooses in its discretion either not to do so or to do so with loopholes or to do so at, at a place which would make a snail uh, win the latest uh, foot race, etc., etc. That's what we've seen. That's the way this economy uh, works. It's the way it has worked for a long time. And even when a particular president or a particular political leader finds it expedient to speak a good line about monopoly or to initiate a, a legal procedure, the larger picture is one of the Clayton Act in 1914, the Sherman Act back in 1890, are mostly dead letters. They do not alter the fundamental thrust of our capitalist system, which is an incentive structure to get every company hoping for, dreaming for, and maneuvering to get precisely the monopoly status that these laws suggest are not wanted in terms of what the society needs. Yeah. yeah, just very quickly, given that uh, we appear to be having around 5 or 6% inflation this year, um, what's your sense of how you would slice that out? I mean, what percentage of that is attributable to monopoly? What percentage of it is, is just uh, you know, a hiccup in supply chains? Uh, what percentage of it is the result of, the, of, the, of any change in our money supply, you know, monetary policy? I think all of the ones you mentioned play a role, but that that role has been exaggerated in favor of not looking at another one, and that's the following. We've just come through a depression. We've just come through the worst public health disaster in a century. A lot of companies, not all, but a lot of companies weren't able to make their usual profits. They waited out 2020. They waited out 2021. They have now become determined to make up cost. Raising prices, which is what employers have the exclusive opportunity to do, is something whose time has come for them. And they're doing it to make more profits, to compensate for those that they lost. And that ought to be put squarely in the middle rather than looking for every other contributing factor. Bingo. Professor Richard Wolf, it's always great talking with you, sir. Thank you so much for the great work that you do every day and, and for coming on our program. It's great having you with us. Thank you, Tom. 
And welcome back. Tom in Fairfax, California. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today? Hey there. Say, I have some ideas for messaging for the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. and, and in part, it's inspired by Jeremy Raskin's new book, Unthinkable, that just came out yesterday. Mm -hmm. I started listening to it. He, he uh, does it on Audible himself. Absolutely oh inspiring. And you were looking the other day about, for ideas about what to call January 6th. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I was thinking, instead of commemorating it as a day, we should not of mourning, we should commemorate it as a day of appreciation by calling it Democracy Day. And that would be a day to contemplate what we almost lost and a day to show our gratitude to those who fought off the mob to preserve our nation as we know it. It, it ah. should be something we're proud of, like so, you know, Sanctuary de Mayo sort of thing. Yeah, so, so celebrate those members of Congress who didn't flee the building, who came back in the middle of the night and, and voted to certify the election and maintain, you know, maintained our democracy and our Constitution. Exactly right, and the Capitol Police, and the people that fought fought them off, and right. to show that uh, the it, democracy worked. It worked. We preserved it. And, You're right. So instead and, of a day of mourning, have it be a day of triumph. Of, it's, and celebration, absolutely. And further, they could take it and apply the term, instead of using the term election day, as the election, the approaching elections come up, mm -hmm. they could call, hey, what are you going to do on Democracy Day? This is your day to participate. This is your day to stand up and, and use the privilege that you've been given, instead of it being sort of this chore or burden that we have to do as yeah. citizens. You know? I like it. I like it, Tom. And, I like it a lot. Tom, thank okay, you. Cool. Thanks, thanks, thanks for it. recalibrating my thinking. I appreciate it. Leon in uh, Maroa, Illinois. Hey, Leon, what's on your mind? Thanks for watching us on Free Speech. Happy New Year, neighbor. Um, Back at you. I just had a question. I'd like your opinion. Back in the uh, early 70s, I wasn't paying much attention to the economy. I was just trying to make a living, newly married. And Richard Nixon froze prices and wages. Right, in 72. I was really upset about it. What would that do to our economy at this point Would it let, until things settle down with the supply chain and whatnot? What, what's your opinion on that and, and, the, and the virus? It's interrupted everything in, in the world yeah. initially, but I just wonder, you know, what would happen. I, the, the theory that Nixon was, was operating under when he did his wage and price freeze was that the disruption to our economy has had been driven by the interruption of oil to the United States. This was the result of the, of the first and second Arab oil, well, the, the, there was a first Arab oil embargo, and then later when the Shah left, that was actually after Nixon was gone, when the Shah left, it happened again, because their oil went offline. But the big one was the Arab right. oil embargo. And that's when, what okay. you know, uh, you and I must have gotten married around the same time. I think I was married in 71 or 72, and, and uh, you know, it was, we were seeing these long lines and all this kind of stuff. And, right. and so his theory or the, his idea was, uh, you know, rather than letting, because this is such an essential thing to the economy, oil, everything runs on oil, be, uh, that rather than letting it um, scramble the economy, we're going to put the economy into a state of suspended animation here until this uh, oil price recovers. I, you know, I'm not sure. I've, I've seen historical analyses suggesting that that actually worked, that it did produce a pause, that it slowed down the, the, the trend toward massive inflation. Um, on the other hand, I've seen economic analyses that said that, you know, he shot himself in the foot. So I don't frankly know, know what to think of it. I'm sorry, yeah. uh, Leon. Um, I don't have a definitive answer. Thanks.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. My uh, op-ed today that I published over at HartmanReport.com is titled, The Shocking Things the GOP and the Trumpians Believe. And, you know, it's, it's really about, as we're going, this is an election year. And as we go into this election year, what is going to come out of this? What are we, you know, how the, the Democrats have policy positions, party and policy positions. The Republicans have party and policy positions. How will those be characterized in the media? Are we going to have an informed electorate as we go into these elections? There's an interesting piece, I believe it was in the Associated Press this morning, suggesting that the generic vote across the country uh, for Congress, this is where they simply ask people all over the country, are you more inclined to vote for a Democrat or a Republican this time around? Has shifted by about two points in favor of Democrats in the last week or two. You know, these week-to-week surveys are pretty meaningless, but there does seem to be something going on here. So, you know, I started with this, this meme that uh, actually I saw on Democratic Underground, in fact, a couple of weeks ago. In fact, I linked to it in my article. Um, it's an uncredited meme that is titled, Shocking Things Liberals Believe. And I added a couple of my own to it, and I slightly rewrote it. But basically, um, this is what Democrats are running on. This is the shocking stuff that liberals believe. Um, People who work full-time shouldn't live in poverty. Homelessness should not exist in the richest country in the world. Women deserve both equal rights and equal pay. Corporations and rich people should not be able to legally bribe politicians. Trashing the planet for profit is wrong and must stop. Every American should have world-class health care at little or no cost. Free higher education and quality public schools unlock human potential, which benefits the entire country. Children should learn the true racial history of America so they can empathize with their peers who are still experiencing these problems and grow up to become well-informed adults. Women should make their own medical decisions, not politicians. Massively profitable industries from the oil, coal, and gas industry to Walmart and Amazon should not get billions in subsidies and tax breaks. And children should not fear getting shot at school. When Wall Street banksters steal from us all, they should be imprisoned instead of bailed out. And no CEO is worth $100,000 an hour, which is $20 million a year, which is a lot of CEOs are making right now. So that's the Democrats. On the Republican side, the Trumpy, you know, now this party's been seized by, the, by Donald Trump. And since 2016, the, Demo- the Republican Party has not issued position papers. They had no, they literally had no party platform in 2020. Whatever Trump says, that's us. That was their party platform. So what are they running on? Well, this is my list. Maybe you can add to it. In fact, I, I throw this out for conversation over the next half hour. This is what it looks to me like the Republicans are running on 
in 2022. Free and fair elections are for suckers. White men should run the country and the world. Violence is a legitimate tool in politics. Conspiracy theories like the one suggesting Democrats drink kids' blood as an elixir of youth are probably real. These are the things that Republicans seem to believe. Rich people and their kids shouldn't have to pay taxes. More guns means less crime and fewer deaths. The darker your skin, the more likely you are a criminal. Again, these are the things that the Republicans not only seem to believe, but they're, you know, legislating on and, and behaving. On. Leadership is about instilling fear, not vision, they say. Women are men's property. Climate change and evolution are tricks to take away our freedoms and ruin religion. Education makes people stupid, Republicans say. Going into politics is the ticket to riches and fame. Just look at Marjorie Taylor Greene. Hey, look at me. I could raise all kinds of issues, raising millions off being in politics. Um, Republicans appear to believe that rich people should make a buck off everything the government does through privatization. That helping people who are going through a rough patch is a waste of time. That the rule of law, Republicans say, only applies to minorities and the poor. That teaching the true racial history of America, Republicans say, is a plot to make white children feel sad. That LGBTQ people don't deserve respect or rights, the Republicans say. That wealth is the proof of goodness and poverty is a proof of moral failure. That giving citizens things like health care, education, family leave, etc. are all socialism and will destroy the American way of life. That government, the Republicans say, has no right to regulate pollution or to protect consumers. And that fiscal responsibility is a phrase that can justify just about anything. So how do we, how do we, you know, am I missing something here? I, I am trying to figure out if the Republicans are actually running on any policies other than banning books, trashing teachers, scaring people, you know, whether it's scaring them about immigrants or scaring them about trans people or scaring, I mean, it's just, I, I, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe some Republicans out there would like to call and inform me. Um, but I think it's going to be tough. Uh, John Kasich was on CNN yesterday. Uh, this is an example of the problem. John Kasich, you know, the former governor of Ohio, former presidential candidate, uh, never Trumper guy, portrays himself as a rational Republican. He's the rational face of the Republican Party. So he goes on CNN yesterday. They were talking about January 6th. And he says, this is a quote, we have seen hatred on both sides. What? And then, you know, of course, on the Democratic side, we've got a problem, too. You know, every time a camera pops up in Washington, D.C., Joe Manchin sticks his face in front of it and starts going, but the deficit, but the filibuster, you know, using Republican talking points. So it's not like, you know, we have a rational political dialogue right now in our media, but I'm hoping we can have one. And I think, frankly, when media does things like, you know, letting John Kasich get away with saying what he said on CNN yesterday, it's incumbent on all of us to go to CNN's Twitter feed and let them know what we think of that. For example, I think that there are ways to hold the media to account. And hopefully we can have an informed election, therefore, this year. What say you? We'll be right back. Well, I've laid out for you what I think is the vision of the Democratic and Republican parties. And, uh, you know, <laughs> get your thoughts on these things. Where do we go from here? Fred in LaPorte, Indiana. Hey, Fred, what's on your mind today? Yeah, Tom, going along with your thoughts on the Republican way of thinking, I have a friend that's a Republican who thinks he's going to convert me, which is not working. 
What, what, he, what argument is he making? Well, he's giving me some literature from Hillsdale College in Michigan. I'm sure you've heard of that. I, it's a far right-wing college. Yeah. I looked it up. Mm -hmm. And uh, some one of the literatures that just about done me in was from Roger Kimball. You probably know him. I don't. It was about the, the title was January 6th, Insurrection Was a Hoax. Oh, jeez. Well, I just about threw the thing away right there. And every, I said, I'm not even going to read that. But I did. And uh, I said, I sat here and watched that. I know it wasn't a hoax. A hoax is a joke. Mm. Have somebody having fun. And <laughs> I did not see that January the 6th. Right. Not only does this Hillsdale College, they offer online courses in politics, history, literature, philosophy, religion, economics. So I don't know how many people are going to be sucked into that because I'm sure they all have a right wing lean to them. Yeah. My recollection, uh, you know, I, I grew up in Michigan and, and I, I, that's what I thought. one of my relatives went to Hillsdale College, but this was like 30 years ago. And it was not a, uh, a right wing crackpot institution at that time. I'm guessing it got taken over by some right wingers or something in, sometime in the last few decades. I must have, because I looked, I read a little bit about it and said uh, one of the nicknames for this college is Trump University. Oh, God. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I thought. So, uh, so, yeah, this, so, so how many let me people, just get this straight. I, I guess this friend, I, I finally said, you know, we got to agree to disagree and not talk politics anymore. I said, that just upset me so bad. Yeah. And, uh, and then these insurrectionists, another point, I think they're getting awful light sentences for what they've done. Attack on our attack on our cap, though. I was I was infuriated. I agree. Nobody has been charged with sedition. Nobody has been charged with conspiracy. Nobody has been charged with destruction of public property. I mean, they're charging them I, under I, the same laws. Five-year sentence. I, I, that's that's a slap on the hand with a with a styrofoam ruler. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you, Fred. I'm 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 most curious though about your friend, your Republican friend who thinks he's going to convert you. Has he offered you? And this is the question I keep asking you. I've been doing this show for 18 years, and every year I renew this challenge. You know, I'll, I'll give an autographed copy of any of my books to, to any person who can name one single piece of legislation that was introduced by, that was written by Republicans, introduced by Republicans, passed Congress with a majority of Republicans, signed by a Republican president whose main beneficiary was average working people or the poor, rather than rich people and big corporations. And for 18 years, nobody has won that prize. Um, I don't understand how anybody who is following the Republican Party today, which I think, frankly, is animated primarily by racism, uh, partly by Christianism, and, and I, I see that as a political hijacking of religion, and, 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 and partly, uh, partly by just you know, good old-fashioned bigotry, fear of the other, whether it's gender others or whether it's racial others or religious others. Um, it, it seems to me like an entirely negative agenda. Has your friend offered you any, uh, you know, like if somebody said, hey, why are you a Democrat? I'd say, well, don't you think everybody should have health care? Has he offered you anything? No, I, I didn't get a chance to ask him because we agreed not to talk politics oh, after okay. this. Yeah, I get it. And one thing that him and another person I know brought up was, what about Hunter Biden? I said, what about Hunter Biden? Yeah. I said, what about, I said, they haven't found him guilty of anything. I said, I don't know anything about him. He said, oh, well, they didn't have any more to say about it. I said, what about all the, the half a dozen guys that they found guilty 
Trump's backers and put in prison and he let them out. I said, what about them? They didn't have an answer. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's the perfect response. Okay, Fred, thanks a lot for that. It's great to hear from you. I, I wish you the happiest of, uh, may this be a great new year, and I uh, appreciate the call. Thank you for watching Free Speech TV. Daniel in Bakersfield, California. Hey, Daniel, thanks for listening to us on SiriusXM. What's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Hey, I just wanted to just weigh in a little bit of how to get our message out. You've been hitting it all morning long is, is on the lies that Republicans believe. Mm-hmm. You know, open borders, you know, we're all for open borders. We all want to defund the police. You know, there's a proverb in the Bible that says the author of all lies is Satan. And these guys just flat out tell lies and they listen to it. And we can't compete with this because they listen to this five days a week, three hours a day or even more, you know, yeah. all day long. Yeah. In, their, in their cars, and their homes, on their earbuds, you know, and... What do you say if they did a campaign like uh, Mark Pocan calling, like right here in Bakersfield, it's Kevin McCarthy territory. We're a little red dot right in the middle of Central Valley. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a guy, a good guy going to run against Kevin McCarthy, but then they gerrymandered the, the district so bad that he goes, he don't have a chance. It costs a lot of money and everything to go up against the, you mm-hmm. know, the Koch brothers. So he, he, he bailed out, and he's just going to run for a uh, – council seat now and he's a great guy he was a ceo of a nonprofit organization for the homeless here in town mm-hmm. bakersfield and great guy well known name and he could talk to republicans Democrats. that's how diplomatic he speaks yeah. you know my question is what if they if we ran a campaign and used their airtime to call in and say hey i just want to say something you know i'm so and so and uh, i just want to make it clear we're not for defunding the police in fact, you guys defunded the police when you didn't pass that that uh, Build Back Better plan. Right. And then you, you, and you can go, I mean, from there, they can go on to everything. He goes, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you invite me to your show next Friday or next week? And I'll, I'll sit down with you guys for an hour and have your, have your viewer, your listeners call me yeah. and ask me questions. And that we're using their billionaires' money to get the message out. Yeah. The problem, you know Daniel, is the guy who owns or controls in some cases both the microphone or the station or the show has pretty uh, incredible amount of power i mean basically you could call into a right-wing show and i'm guessing that there is probably even a local one in bakersfield and you can oh, call there's in several even yeah. a black guy he's a republican that sits there and <laughs> there you go so I'm, but i'm guessing day. you could call into that show and say you know uh, uh, democrats aren't in, fa- in favor of uh, defunding the police they're in favor you know and and, and even try and and he would throw you know there are quotes out there that he would throw back at you or democrats aren't in favor of open borders um and, he, and there are quotes out there that he would throw. that there it's not the it's not an effort to be honest on the part of most right wingers in the in the media because right. they're defending the def, the indefensible they, you know, they're they're defending something that is not consistent with American values and traditions. They're mm-hmm. they're defending oligarchy essentially in the United States, and and increasingly right. they're defending fascism. And uh, so, you know, uh, I mean, uh, years ago when this show was young, I mean, like more than a decade ago, there were a couple of my colleagues, right wing talk show hosts. Um, one of them I went to South Sudan with. You know, we spent a, a couple of weeks together. Uh, along with Joe Madison, Joe Madison and me and Rusty Humphreys, who's, uh, you know, a right wing talk show host. And, um, you know, there were there were a couple of these guys that I got to know fairly well and we would go on each other's shows. And it just always shocked me that when I would go on their shows, 
it, their, it, their goal was not to have an, a conversation that was going to inform anybody. Their goal was to win. And I, you know, I'm willing to lose an argument if I'm wrong. So I, I just, you know, I encourage people, uh, yourself included, Daniel, Daniel, to be calling into these local right-wing shows and, and truth bombing them. But it, it's not going to be the solution to anything. It's not going to solve, you know, and, and, and in some cases, all you'll be doing is giving them a, uh, a, a stepping off point for an extended, you know, rant that's going to, you know, contradict that point. But try it. And thank you for the call, Daniel. There's a couple of people who are like pretty good at this, and they call into this program from time to time and tell us their war stories of calling into right-wing talk radio. It's fascinating, but it, it takes some skill. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Or at least some practice to get there, right? <laughs> so go for it. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. talk about religion here for a moment. I, I think that there's there's some there's a, a, a real substantial issue. You know, have the Trumpians sent religion straight to hell in America is is my title here. And uh, Robert Jones uh, writes a, a, a thing called Religious Dispatches, uh, kind of a newsletter. And he looked into the merger between the white supremacy movement in the United States and the white evangelical movement in the United States and Trump's maggot movement. And it's pretty shocking stuff. I mean, it's, very, it's, it's actually very concerning stuff. Um, did you know that there was an entire contingent of the, uh, the, the traitors who showed up on January 6th, people who believed themselves to be patriots. They believed Donald Trump when he told them that the Democrats had stolen the election, quack, quack, quack. Um, you know, black people in the cities, uh, complete with his video of Ruby, you know, down in Atlanta. Uh, apparently believed this. They called themselves the Jericho March and took buses to Washington, D.C. They were Part of this, his, his report, uh, this, is, this is actually out of a report by the University of Alabama's Religious Studies Department that was done in conjunction with the Smithsonian Institution. And they write, we, this is uh, the, uh, the project, the two leaders of the project, Michael Altman and Jerome Kapolsky. We contend that religion was not just one aspect of the attack on the Capitol, but rather it was a thread that weaves through the entirety 
of the events of January 6th. This Jericho March, they write, and again, I'm quoting from this study that's you know, published in part by the Smithsonian Institution. The, the, the Jericho March was imitating the siege of the city of Jericho by the Israelites described in the book of Joshua in the Hebrew Bible. The day before the attack, Christianity Today, the magazine, Christianity Today, reported that this Jericho March group was attending January 6th to, quote, pray for a Trump miracle. Uh, they cited Beth Moore, a Southern Baptist author and Bible teacher, and First Amendment lawyer David French as being among the few willing to speak out against the ways in which the evangelical community has canonized Trump. This, this being, you know, consequential because it's like, the exception is now proving the rule. I mean, every now and then, just like every you got Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, you've got a couple of Republicans willing to stand up and say, Trump is a, Trump is a fascist. They may not use that word, but you know, in, in essence, what he's trying to do is the antithesis of American values. Similarly, there are a few people within the, within the church who are standing up and saying, you know, yeah, uh, this, this is the antithesis of what, you know, Jesus would have done, and certainly the teaching, the historic teachings of Christianity. But uh, Jeffrey Goldberg, for example, who writes for The Atlantic, interviewed a whole bunch of people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th for a piece that he did for The Atlantic. And repeatedly, now keep in mind, many, many of these people showed up carrying crosses, carrying Christian iconog iconography, um, using Christian phrases. Uh, Goldberg said that he heard phrases like, quote, it's all in the Bible. Well, yeah, if you, th you, know, you think this, the, the modern uh, DC has become Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, for example, well, yeah, that's in the Bible. Actually, most conservatives who cite Sodom and Gomorrah don't actually, obviously have never read the Bible. Uh, something I actually did. I've read a cover to cover four times. But the, you know, in, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, God punished them for not being charitable. For not for not being progressives, you know, you, you didn't you didn't care for strangers, you didn't feed your people, you didn't care for you. And, and but, but in any case, they, they say it's all in the Bible. Uh, they'll say they told Jeffrey Goldberg this has been predicted, right? Yeah, it's all in Revelation or in Isaiah or in, in Jeremiah. They'll say Donald Trump is in the Bible, and they say get yourself ready. This 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 is this. Christianized movement, this, this movement, this Trump movement, using and exploiting the name of Christ and the, 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 the words and teachings of Jesus, exploiting that to do the exact opposite of what Jesus taught us to do. I mean, in Matthew 25, is pretty explicit about it. It's literally the only place in the Bible where the disciples came to Jesus and said, how do we get to heaven to hang out with you? And he said, in the last days, I'll be sitting there judging, you know, separating the goats from the sheep. The goats are going off to hell. The sheep are going to heaven with me. And he said, and he, he said that uh, those who did not, he said, I, I, you did not give me water when I was thirsty. You did not give me food when I was hungry. You did not heal me when I was sick. You did not visit me when I was in prison. Off to hell with you. 
And if you did, and, and those of you who did feed me when I was hungry and, and gave me water and visited me in prison and healed me when I was sick and, and clothed me when I was naked, you get to go to heaven with me. And that freaked out the disciples. I mean, I, I go back and read Matthew 25. It's fascinating. It freaked them out because they said to him, we've never seen you hungry. We've never seen you in prison. We've never seen you sick. How can we get to heaven? We, we never had an opportunity to do these things. And he says, as you do to the least among, among us, you have done unto me. I mean, it's literally the definition of modern progressive thinking. And yet that theology, that religion has been hijacked by these neo-fascists and, and Trump hoppers. And they're just, they're, they're exploiting this core religious impulse that, that I think all of us have deep inside us. It expresses in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it expresses just in our love for our partner, our spouse, our children, or our pets. Sometimes it expresses itself in the awe we feel when we walk out on a dark night and look up at the stars. Sometimes it expresses itself, you know, in, in church during a religious service. I mean, it's just different for everybody, but it's deep inside us. And they are taking this and turning it into this, this horrible political thing. Sarah K. Burris is writing about this over at Raw Story. She notes, the evolution among white Christian evangelicals to Trumpism is part of another trend showing a growing racism index among the group, among Christian evangelicals. And, the, and then she cites a, a, an Associated Press exit poll uh, done by a company called VoteCast, uh, where they found that the median score on the racism index was 78 out of 100. About 78%, I believe, if I'm interpreting this writing correctly, of the white Christian evangelicals are at least in part motivated in their politics by racism or at least by racial fear, or whatever you want to call that. I, I, I think racial fear and racism are the same thing, frankly. She goes on to note, the researchers tracked the support for January 6th attackers beginning in February of 2021, which is just you know a couple of weeks after it happened. And over seven months, this is Sarah Burris writes this, over seven months support for prosecuting the attackers among the true believers, over, over a seven month period, that support dropped 22%. This is support for prosecuting people. So in other words, they asked Christian evangelicals right after January 6th, should these people who trashed the Capitol and tried to overthrow our government, should they go to jail? 76% said yes. Seven months later, they asked them again. And now only 54% said yes, they should go to jail. They asked these Christian, white Christian evangelicals right after January 6th, earlier, this, earlier last year, they asked them, do you support the people who attacked the Capitol? 13% of the white evangelicals said yes. They asked him the same question again. Do you support the, 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 these people who attacked our capital? Asked them that a, a month or so ago. It's now up to 27%. More than a quarter of all the white evangelicals that they interviewed now support the attackers. 70 and, 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 and you know, 76% of them are now saying, and by the way, they should not be prosecuted for anything. 
Perry and Whitehead, these uh, researchers uh, believe, Sarah Burris writes, that the reason for increased support among the Christian nationalist community comes in part from their devotion to Donald Trump. To make matters worse, other researchers, worse, other researchers have found that Christian nationalists seem more inclined to buy into conspiracy theories like those around COVID-19 vaccine and QAnon world. I guess at a certain level, that makes sense. If you are willing to believe in the supernatural, you know, believe that, you know, uh, uh, God's son came to earth and died for our sins and rose after three days, none of those things comport with science. If you're willing to believe those, then if somebody comes along with something that's a real credible theory that's kind of wrapped in religion also, well, okay, I'll believe that too. But it, it's just the, the QAnon world, the vaccine conspiracies, the Donald Trump conspiracies, all of this, this is, this is very sad, very dangerous stuff. And I don't, I don't know what to do about this, frankly, other than pointing it out, which is why I'm talking about it right now. I do think that just like the Republican Party is going through a period of extreme stress right now, and, and I, I, I hope has an awakening. Uh, you see little bits of it here and there. Liz Cheney. I think that the same thing is happening in the white evangelical community, in the church, as it were. And I think the same thing is happening in the conservative Catholic community. And, you know, how we're going to make it through, how we're going to be on the other side of this is, I think, an open question in those regards. But it may be end up being a healthy process. Over the short term, though, it's just got to be really, really tough on, on these people. Um, I, there was another piece I read, that, I think it was in the Times a week or so ago, about all the pastors who are leaving their churches because the right-wing crazies are taking over the churches. Something to look look out for, you know, and, and up next, the GOP death cult watch. Stick around. And welcome back. Maverick in Edmonds, Washington. Hey, Maverick, what's on your mind today? Tom, it's uh, one of those rare instances where you called me and I'm not actually in a super noisy environment. It worked okay, out well. Cool. So what's up? Well, I called because I wanted to talk about a topic you were talking about, about the shortness of the sentences for the January Sixers. Mm -hmm. But you just said that you had a thing that you didn't really know what to do with when it came to convincing people about, uh, you know, to, to believe in the, the science and the math. And man, that touches a nerve with me. I I don't know which topic you want you want me to. Uh, well, to pick to one, Maverick. Go for it. Well, uh, I'll go with my original one because my second one would just uh, get me going too much uh, as a as a uh, as a secular humanist. So I was listening. I listened to Glenn Kirshner. I watch him on YouTube. I I would assume that you are aware of him. Mm -hmm. I am. Um, yes. And, the former former federal prosecutor, and uh, he's got a just really really nice little uh, short little six minute things on on YouTube, mm -hmm. and uh, he addressed that subject of the, the 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 short sentences to the people that are found guilty of uh, various crimes on January sixth, and he uh, is a former RICO prosecutor, as you know, which RICO is uh, what 
racketeering influence and corrupt organizations. Right. So it's a special branch of, of law practice and, 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 and whatnot. And he said this is how it, it's progressing like a RICO case. As they start from the bottom up with the small fish and small sentences. And he pointed out a trend that he observed and that there were uh, there's the sentences are slowly getting a little bit longer. Uh, you can remember the the QAnon sense shaman guy. He got 14 months, which was one of the longer ones. And then somebody else recently got a, uh, another sentence that was uh, close to two years or whatnot. So Glenn claims that these sentences are going to get longer and longer as the prosecutors work their way up in this absolutely abominable pyramid. Yeah. Uh, I think there's another aspect of that, too, Maverick, and that is that the very first that? person who was who was sentenced, literally the first person who was sentenced, was a young woman whose name escapes me. I'm sorry, I only read it once in the article a couple of days ago. And uh, she broke down in tears in front of the judge and said, I'm so sorry, and I've done all my research, and now I realize I was duped. And so he gave her a slap on the wrist. He gave her, you know, probation. And then she, she went on Fox right. News and laughed about how she lied to the judge. And, oh, God, and, I remember that, yeah. yeah. And so I think that that was a oh-crap moment for a lot of federal judges. Well, I, that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, I, I would like to see that, like to believe that the federal judges and all judges uh, can maintain objectivity based on each individual case. Yeah. However, you know, Part of me just wants to see these people get the book thrown at them. Like, we haven't seen anyone charged with sedition yep. or or damage to federal property. I mean, we're, everybody listening to you and I right now, and by the way, I'm going on, I think, six years listening to your show. I rarely miss an hour a week. I appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thank you. Uh, you know, wouldn't we all like to see some serious sentences uh, on these people that would really maybe discourage I'm, I'm most interested in seeing the serious sentences being... Uh, handed down to the people who were the planners, the people who knew that this was all a lie. I, I am, I have some sympathy for people who actually thought they were defending their country, um, which I think is probably the majority of the, of the, of the frontline people. Maverick, I got to run. Thanks. Our book today is Microtrends Squared by Mark Penn. The first chapter, The Building Blocks of Change Today, The Power of Microtrends. We live in a microtrends world. It's driven by granular, often opposite patterns of human behavior that seem small but punch above their size. We've identified these powerful patterns as microtrends, and the world is full of them. Together, they are the dots of a global impressionist painting that comes to life when you step back and look at it holistically. These forces have only become more impactful in recent years, and they've started to upend society. Ten years ago, when I first identified these patterns and change in microtrends, I saw a world of boundless opportunities. I was over-the-top optimistic about how microtrends would produce a new world of personalized products on our shelf, and how in Washington they would produce an even greater selection of fresh, first-rate political choices. Of course, that's not exactly what happened. Instead, the information age has given away to the disinformation age in which fake information abounds. The nation founded on free speech is grappling with how to live with free speech in the era of the internet troll. 
The optimism around our economy faded with the unexpected crash of 2008, followed by a historically slow recovery over a decade. Only now is it recovering. Unparalleled consumer choice is leading not to the growth of more startups, but to the dominance of just a few internet companies, which are amassing more and more power on the basis of data gleaned from willing but unknowing consumers. And the older generations who in their youth, in their own youth, led a rebellion, have now dug in their heels against the politics and culture of today's new generations. What makes the microtrend such a powerful tool in this moment is that it can unpack and explain changes that we're seeing that otherwise make no sense. On the surface, for example, the middle class can seem to be shrinking, and this is alarming. But it is only by digging deeper and seeing that education is driving more people into the upper classes that we can come to understand these overall statistics at a more molecular level. Often, two diametrically opposed trends are occurring at the same time, which would be invisible in the averages, but which leap out when understood as the result of a cauldron of microtrends. Today in politics, for example, there is no overall ideological shift. Instead, one group of moderates became more conservative and another group became more liberal, causing society to become both more liberal and more conservative at the same time, essentially canceling each other out. This increased polarization then produces even more gridlock and confusion. We can see similar tugs and pulls throughout society. While one group seeks more technology, another one wants to sit in the Amtrak quiet car. Some can't sit through a six-second commercial. Others spend hours and hours binge-watching TV. Some live in a world of globalization, while others yearn for a return to greater nationalism. To explain all this, we've borrowed from Newtonian physics. For every trend, there is a counter-trend. It's human nature in the information age. Every move or desire in one direction seems to inspire a counter-move by another group in the opposite direction. For every radical group, there's a new conservative group. For every new product in mobile technology, there are those sticking to the flip phone. Only by understanding the complexity of these developments can we make sense of a world that seems senseless, confused, and even jumbled. People everywhere became more individualistic in their tastes and were rebelling from carefully mowed lawns and white picket fences. The marketplace responded to these trends by allowing people to have it their own way, and they did. The theory was that more choice would result in a happier and more satisfied group of consumers. Variety would open consumers up to new experiences, in many ways bringing us closer together, allowing to, us to mix, match, and try out all sorts of new options. Yeah. Something rather surprising happened, however, as consumers got more choice. The book Microtrends Squared. And uh, welcome back. Sandra in Omaha, Nebraska. What's on your mind, Sandra? Well, since this whole thing started almost two years ago now, I've followed every rule. I've gotten every vaccine. I've worn a mask and sterile gloves anytime I leave the house, which is like once a week for groceries. And my son and I both work for the same company, which also insists that, oh, we're taking every precaution and we want everybody back in the office. Well, since he's a contractor, not fully with the company yet, they require him to show up. Hmm. And so somebody shared it with him, and then he got it, and before he realized, he shared it with me. And so we've all had COVID now. Oh my. It's been a joy. Uh, I love coughing. You lose weight that way if you cough often enough and constantly. Uh, it's not the way to do, lose weight, but, you know, it is a way. And the company still insists, oh, there's kumbaya, let's all come back to the office. Yeah, not such a good idea. Yeah. And I'm a little tired of it because this is one of the richest companies owned by one of the richest 
men in the world. So I would think when we've proven for two years that we can do the work from home, and actually we're happier doing so, that they would at least bend their stiff spine just teeny light little bit to let people actually do so safely from home. But no, 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 that, that's not possible. Yeah. So he now has bronchitis as well as COVID. And, uh, you know, he has to go back to work next week. Amazing. Because he's had his, his, his legal five days off now. So Amazing. Sandra, yeah. thank you for sharing your story. It's, it's, it's just yeah. these wild stories out there. Michael in San Carlos, California. Hey, Michael, uh, what's up? Hey, Tom, and thanks for taking the call. Happy New Year's. Thank you. I wanted to see if I could possibly go down in history for winning your little contest, the ongoing contest for Republican law that was put into place that primarily benefits the poor people and, and, and that. What have you got? Well, H.R. 2912, which was passed by the 108th Congress, was a law that was put in place by Frank Lucas. Uh, he's a Republican out of out of Oklahoma. What year and was the this? Law, that was in uh, 2003, passed in 2004. It was okay. put into law on uh, December 3rd, 2004. Okay. So, so this law was effectively to reaffirm the inherent sovereign right of the Osage tribe determine its own membership and form of government. So it was really kind of a correction that was done because back in 1906, as I recall, um, Congress took that right away from the Osage tribe in a, in a law that was particularly directed towards that one uh, tribal community. And so mm -hmm. it was a correction, but obviously it did help uh, these poor people that basically had this right taken away. Yeah. Well, Michael, let me check it out. I wrote it down, H.R. 2912, 2003, 2004. Frank Lucas introduced it. That would have been during the George W. Bush presidency. Um, I'm going to put you on hold so that Joyce can get your personal information so I can reach out to you via e email or whatever if you won. Uh, but let me just do some fact checking, okay? Super. Thanks, okay. Tom, and have a great weekend. Thanks a lot. Just hang on. Uh, Joyce, my, Michael's on line eight. Uh, Margie in Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. Hey, Margie, what's up? Hey, real quick before I get on my point, uh, breaking news, Florida had one million home test kits expire in a warehouse the last week of December. Wow. Huffington Post. Um, I called about uh, using vaccination status as a criteria for admitting to limited resource beds, mm -hmm. i.e. triage. I see this no differently than if I need a lung transplant, I will be denied one. Yeah, if you have lung disease and you are smoking and you want to get a lung transplant, you've got to quit smoking. If you've got liver disease and you're drinking, they will not give you a liver if you keep drinking. It seems so like there's should, adequate precedent here. Yes. So why should somebody who is not taking the um, a vaccine, which has been proven safe and effective, why should they get to take resources away from people who are being responsible? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you. Thank you very much for the call, Margie. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, real quick. Next week, everybody in the audience, we need to start dialing directly the phone news channel and whomever is your cable provider. If Chris Cuomo 
can lose his position over some, you know, minor advisory comments to his brother, then Sean Hannity, their their number one hour, their big money maker, um, has to be held to at least a similar standard. And we know Fox will never fire him, but uh, our cable providers, everyone who allows this for-profit, you know, Kool-Aid machine to call itself news, Call directly. Call your representative. You know, this is a propaganda operation that's devoid of news credibility, so they should at least be required to pull news right. from their Owned name. and call run by billionaires gossip. for the interests of billionaires. I mean, let's be it's very clear about this. Gossip, you and, know, it's not yeah. news. And, and look, this is as red-handed as we're ever going to catch them, so now it's time to talk about uh, let's be adults and be honest. Yeah, I'm with you. Eric, thank you for the call. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Geraldine Halbert, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jabbermocky, Jay LeBlanc, Connor Arroyo, and Carna Verde, the, the folks who all work on this program. And thank you all. And thank you for being with us today and this week. And be good to yourself and people around you. And don't forget, democracy needs you. So. Figure out ways to get active, right? There's a million different ways. So get out there, get active, tag your end. We'll see you on Monday. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 